say a quick word of prayer before we look into the scriptures. <clears throat> Father, we bring our sin uh, before you this morning. We acknowledge that you are holy. We acknowledge that we are sinners. And we confess, we repent, and we accept the forgiveness that you have bought for us and secured for us in Jesus Christ. We pray for the sick in our church. We know that there are people in our church now who are suffering with coronavirus as well as other illnesses. We pray for them, Lord. Pray for their healing. We pray for the sick in our country and throughout the world. We pray for a speedy delivery of vaccines that would bring an end to this pandemic. And we pray that on the other side of this, there would be a greater recognition of our need for Christ. So we pray for revival in our country and throughout the world. And Lord, we are also on our minds right now is the unity and the well-being of our nation. And we pray for that. We pray for the unity and the well-being of our nation. We pray, for, we pray that you would bring peace to this land. Unify us. Enable us to love our neighbors, to love those who disagree with us, to show grace to people through social media and in our conversations with people who may disagree with us on political issues or religious issues. We pray for peace in the land. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, before I got thrown into uh, that two-week quarantine, we were five weeks into a series called Let My People Think. And I want to pick that series up this week where we left off because, uh, and because it's been a while since I last preached on it, let me, just, let me just reset the series for a moment. When we started that series a number of weeks ago, we said that the most significant thing in the long run, the most significant thing about 2020 may well not be the, the pandemic. It may be that it was the year that many of the ideas that have been simmering on college campuses, social media, and on the periphery of our culture all exploded into mainstream culture all at once. Ideas like gender theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, compelled speech, censorship of free speech, and others. And we said that uh, the brilliant American theologian uh, of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, once wrote that it's the ideas and the images in men's minds that are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. In other words, the point is that the ideas, uh, that, that, that ideas drive the world and they govern your behavior. And when you come to believe in Christ Jesus, many of the ideas that you have learned about the world and that you have taken for granted that are true about the world have to be unlearned. And that's the point behind this series. I want to help you unlearn untrue ideas about the world by giving you seven key biblical ideas that will help you think accurately about the world in which we live. We've called this having a biblical worldview. A worldview, we've said, provides a model of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. If you would, put that up on the screen. A worldview provides a model of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. Now, so far, we've looked at five of the seven elements of a biblical worldview. First, we've seen that God is ultimate reality. Second, we've seen that God created the universe. 
Third, we've seen that sin has corrupted God's creation. Fourth, we saw that God redeems sinners. And fifth, we've seen that God will restore his creation. Well, this morning, as we move into the sixth element of a biblical worldview, we need to talk about the reality of personified evil. In other words, we need to talk about Satan. And now you see right away, when I mention Satan, people tend to divide into two camps. One camp, the most sizable, argues that any mention of Satan, the devil, Lucifer, uh, all of that reeks of primitive religion. All of that stuff is just a projection of humanity's worst spheres. It's an adult version of the monster under the bed. Get serious. It's the 21st century. We're much more advanced now. We don't believe in those kinds of things. And in fact, according to the Barna Research Group, this is where at least two-thirds of Americans stand. Perhaps many, perhaps some, or many of you would even fall into this camp. You do not believe uh, in Satan. Now, in the other camp, there are those who are all too ready to talk about Satan. Every time a bush moves, uh, when they have a flat tire, uh, when a business deal doesn't go through, when you get a bad review from your boss, it's always Satan. See, two camps. In his marvelous book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. He is equally pleased by both errors. Well, this morning as we talk about Satan, let's not make either one of those mistakes. Let's not be dismissive of him, but let's not also be overly interested in him. And so if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Ephesians uh, chapter 6 in the New Testament. There are a lot of passages that I could take, to you, take you to this morning to, to speak about the reality of Satan, but I think this particular passage serves our purposes uh, very well. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a place called Ephesus, and as he concludes his letter, he says to the people in this church, read with me from verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord... And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. And here's really where I want to begin to focus this morning. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We'll stop there. Now, before we break this passage down, uh, let me just state for you the sixth element of a biblical worldview in propositional form. Here it is, very easy statement. Satan is a defeated enemy. Satan is a defeated enemy, okay? Now, if you think about that, there are three assertions in that statement, and I want to use those three assertions as the outline for the rest of my comments. Here's, here are the three assertions that it makes. First, that Satan is real. That's one. Second is that Satan is an enemy. I want to show you that this morning. And then third, that he is a defeated enemy. And I want to show you that. But let's start with the assertion that Satan is real. Now, I don't know if you noticed that Paul doesn't pull any punches on this in these verses. 
He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's, Satan's, schemes. Paul doesn't even take the time to defend his assertion that the devil or Satan is real. Why? Why doesn't he do that? Well, because that's old news to Paul's readers. Satan is mentioned directly in the Old Testament 19 times by my count, 16 times in the Gospels alone. Paul's readers were very familiar with the reality of Satan. But as I said earlier, many people today, in fact, two-thirds of people today, don't believe in the reality of Satan, relegating belief in Satan to primitive people in primitive times. Modern people, they would say, perhaps some of you would say, modern people don't believe in personified evil. Uh, people who object to the reality of Satan usually fall into one of three camps, each of which is problematic. So, for instance, there are some of you who believe in supernatural good, but you deny supernatural evil. That's one camp. Let me give you an example of this. Any of you familiar with the name Jack Canfield? Any of you familiar with that name? He's the one, maybe you'd be familiar with one of the books he wrote, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Anybody remember, uh, remember that? Okay. Uh, Canfield's also uh, gone on to become a major uh, motivational speaker. I want you to listen to this, uh, which I took straight from, uh, straight from his blog. He says, uh, he says, could you put that up on the screen? He says, yes. He says, the universe works in mysterious ways. It is constantly working to make available to you the tools, the resources, the people, and the lessons you need to become the person you were meant to be. Which is why it's so important, he says, to pay attention to signs from the universe. Now, if you notice, what Canfield is doing in this is that he's attributing supernatural qualities to the universe in that it is working. He's saying that the universe is working to make available to you the things that you need to become the person you were meant to be. This is something that you often hear. I don't know if you've, if you've heard this. I've heard people, celebrities often who say this kind of thing in interviews. They'll say, well, you know, the universe was working to, to show me the path I needed to take. The universe gave me this. It was good. Something like that. Okay. Now, there are more problems with what he's saying than I have time to take on today. But suffice it to ask this. If you are willing to affirm supernatural good, if you're willing to affirm that the universe is working for your good, to give it supernatural qualities, if you're willing to affirm that it's working for good, how can you be logically consistent in denying supernatural evil? See, in this case, if, why are you so sure that the universe is only out for your good and not for evil? In fact, where does evil come from if it doesn't exist? So that's one camp. There's another camp of people who don't believe in the reality of Satan. And these are people who might fall into the camp of folks that would be friendly towards some of Jesus' teachings, things like love your neighbor, treat others the way you want to be treated. But they're embarrassed by other things that Jesus said, like things that he says about Satan. Here's a few of the things, by the way, that Jesus said about Satan. Matthew 4.11, he says, be gone, Satan. In John 8, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. 
Luke 10, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So, see, you can't just say, well, there are some things that I like that Jesus said, and there are other things that I find intellectually embarrassing, and so I won't follow the things that I find embarrassing. See, that too is inconsistent. You have to take all or nothing of Jesus. That's the problem with that camp. Now, there's a third camp. The third camp that some people fall into is the camp that just denies the supernatural completely. You would say, some of you would say, that science has proven that the universe is a closed system. There cannot be any supernatural, not supernatural good. There can't be any supernatural evil. You need to understand that science has not proven that, nor can it, nor is that the scope of science study. The scientific method is the study of things in the physical world which are observable and repeatable, and repeatable. But science can't rule out things that are not observable. Like some of you know this saying, right, that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? See, that's science's problem. It cannot prove that the supernatural does not exist. No, you see, to deny the supernatural altogether is a faith position. See, some of you would like to say that you're all about science and you relegate faith to people who are religious, but you need to understand that you too are taking a faith position when you say that there is no supernatural. You cannot prove that there is no supernatural good or evil, and to hold to such a thing is a faith position. The Bible affirms that Satan is real. He is not a projection of human fears. He is not mythological, but he is very, very real, and he is the source of all evil. Now, besides the fact that the Bible asserts that Satan is real, this idea that Satan is a defeated enemy, the second assertion in it is that Satan is an enemy. I want you to look at these verses again. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now stop there. Right away, you've got this assertion that the devil schemes against the purposes of God. And indeed, if you went back through the Bible, you would see that while God is working from, from the very moment that Adam and Eve sit in the garden, God is working to reestablish his kingdom on earth. But at every turn, Satan is working to resist it. Now, I want to I just, under this umbrella, under this point that Satan is an enemy, I want to just give you four ways that Satan is an enemy. Four ways that Satan is an enemy of God. First, Satan is the enemy of God's Messiah. He's the enemy of God's Messiah, Jesus. From his birth, Satan works to destroy Jesus. From Herod's decree to massacre all of the baby bo babies born around the time of Jesus, to Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, to Jesus' crucifixion, Satan worked directly and indirectly through human beings to destroy God's king, God's Messiah. Satan is an enemy of God's Messiah. He's also, second, he's also an enemy of humanity. I want you to listen to this. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Satan is actively working against human beings, blinding their minds to the reality of Christ so that they cannot respond to Christ. Now, I just want to make this very practical for just a moment. And I want to do so by speaking to those of you who are parents of young children right now. Please understand, parents. Please understand. One of the implications of this idea that Satan is an enemy of humanity is that Satan wants your babies. He wants your children. And I'm not fear-mongering when I say that. I'm just telling you again that that is one of the implications of this truth that Satan is an enemy of humanity. Now, as soon as I say that Satan wants your babies, your mind, some of you, your mind naturally goes to things like drug addictions and stripper poles and things like that. But I have to tell you that that's a tragically naive way of thinking. Satan is clever. And he even works through things that we would consider good to take your children. Things like an overemphasis on morality. Morality is a good thing, but an overemphasis on morality in the home at the expense of authenticity is something that Satan uses to take your children. An overemphasis on performance, good grades, achievements. Those are good things, but Satan uses those as well. Here's one, and I see this often, an overemphasis on sports, that slowly crowds out the child's spiritual development. Sports are good. It's great. Fantastic. Satan uses that too. Satan wants your babies. He wants your sons and he wants your daughters because he is an enemy of humanity. And while there is a great deal more that I can say about that than I have time, if I could give parents a piece of advice, it would be this. Prioritize your own spiritual life for the sake of your children. Prayer, reading, and learning the scriptures, being active, regular participants in your church, worshiping together as a family, all of those help guard against Satan taking your children. Men, be spiritual leaders in your homes for the sake of your children. It's not that moms are not important. Moms, you're very important. But let me tell you something. Dads set the tone for spirituality within the home. Dads set the tone for spirituality within the home. What you model, dad, spiritually, will make an important impact on your children. And your absence, spiritually, will play right into Satan's plan to take your kids. Satan is an enemy of humanity, which includes your very children, your babies. He's also an enemy of the gospel. He's an enemy of the gospel. The apostle Paul writes... He writes, I'm afraid lest the serpent deceived Eve, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from, listen to this, the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. That is the gospel. Devotion to Christ. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's the gospel. It's that Jesus Christ has accomplished man's salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection. That's it. Nothing more. Nothing less. 
But Satan is routinely working to lead people away from that simple, pure truth. Now, I'm going to do something this morning that will be shocking to anyone who knows me well. And frankly, it's, it's, it's shocking to me uh, that I'm going to do this. In three, decades, uh, in three decades of being a pastor, I have never, not once, not ever, recommended a Christian movie. And I can't say this strongly enough. I have never, ever recommended a Christian movie. Some of you know that we do a, we, we have in the past done a series uh, kind of regularly called City Church of the Movies. And, and you know, we, we uh, review movies to see where uh, the narrative, the story of redemption shows up in movies, even though uh, the, uh, the writers and the producers and the actors aren't, aren't necessarily trying to convey that message. It's still there. But none of those, we've never, ever, ever reviewed a Christian movie. The reason, in my opinion, Christian movies aren't good art. They're cheesy. They're predictable. They're poorly acted. They're obvious. They're preachy. And I realize that even as I say that, I run the risk of offending some of you. I don't mean to offend you if there are Christian movies that you have liked. Listen, it's just my opinion. My opinion, it's just my opinion on that. It's subjective. One man's cheese is another man's art. So please don't, don't be offended, right? But today, at the risk of ruining any credibility that I might have with some of you, I'm going to recommend for the first time and probably the last time a Christian documentary on Netflix called The American Gospel. And the reason I'm recommending it is, A, it's not a movie with a plot and actors, okay? B, well, actually, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a movie, like I said, with actors and a plot. It's, it's a documentary. But also, B, the reason I'm recommending is this is that you will see in this documentary how cleverly Satan has worked through the church in America to lead people away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ the gospel. I think it's an important documentary. I really do. And listen, the thing about it is that it pulls no punches about the specific individuals, the specific people that Satan has used and is using today to distort the gospel. Like, it names names. If you knew me, again, you would know how reticent I am to recommend even this documentary to you, but I frankly can't think of a better way to help you understand how Satan leads people astray from the gospel, and at the same time to help you understand the driving passion behind City Church and what we're about and why we do what we do. I can't think of a better way to accomplish that than to have you, to ask you to watch this documentary called The American Gospel. And I, I hope that you We'll check it out. In case you might be wondering, I've not been paid to promote the documentary. Uh, I haven't been asked to promote the documentary. I have been asked over the years to promote many Christian movies, uh, and I never have done that, just so that we're clear. The American Gospel, uh, check it out. Uh, I'm not just saying this as a pastor, by the way. Like some of you are thinking to yourself, you know, he's getting older. Like he had a birthday this year. And uh, this is probably what happens when pastors get older. They start liking cheesy stuff. That is not the case with me. Uh, That's not what's happening. I'm recommending this to you as as a believer in Jesus Christ. I think it's worth watching. And I hope you will take the time uh, to watch it. So again, Satan is an enemy. He's an enemy of God's Messiah. He's an enemy of humanity. He's an enemy of the gospel. But then he is also 
an enemy of the church. He's an enemy of the church. From the formation of the church until now, Satan has been actively resisting the existence of and the work of Christ's church. What? How? How does he do that? Well, one of the ways is from inside of the church. Throughout the New Testament, you would, you would see in the, in the New Testament epistles, the Apostle Paul is constantly having to fight off false teachers who want to infiltrate the church in order to destroy it and to pervert the gospel. He writes this. He writes, he writes about these men. By the way, some of these men you will see in the American gospel, in the documentary The American Gospel, and women. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's what I was saying earlier. Satan, Satan often works through things that we would consider good. Okay? Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to to their deeds. Satan works from inside the church to destroy it through false teachers, through disunity within the church, through church divisions. But he also works from outside the church. He is an enemy of the church. He works from inside the church. He also works from outside the church. This is what Peter was referring to when he tells his readers who were suffering persecution for their faith in Christ, he says to them, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, he's saying, it should not be a shock to you that Satan is an enemy of the church and will do whatever he can to destroy it. It shouldn't be a shock to you. It's not like a shocking thing. He's an enemy of the church. Uh, just last year, the British uh, government... Um, commissioned a study on uh, persecution of religious people. And the study found that 80% of persecuted religious people throughout the world, 80% of persecuted religious people are Christians. I'm going to read to you what it says. The report went as far as to say that Christian persecution worldwide was not only increasing, but here it is, arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide. The, eradic the eradication of Christians and other minorities on pain of the sword or other violent means was revealed to be the specific and stated objective of the extremist groups in Syria, Iraq, Egypt, Northeast Nigeria, and the Philippines, states the interim report. An intent to erase all evidence of the Christian presence was made plain by the removal of crosses, the destruction of church buildings, and other church symbols. Again, that was a report commissioned by and presented to the British government last year on religious persecution. Now, here's the thing. For most of American history, Christians in America have had the luxury of viewing persecution for faith in Christ as something that happened over there somewhere, like overseas, but not here. But I have to tell you that there is increasing concern that the trend towards censoring ideas by labeling them hate speech will inevitably result in perse persecution against the church here in America. How long will it be until the gospel is labeled hate speech in America? How long will it be until holding to the Bible's sexual ethic 
or affirming that God created human beings male and female or affirming that marriage is the joining together of a man and a woman, how long until these things become labeled hateful, oppressive speech in America that must be censored and for which there are severe penalties? How long? Apostle Peter would say to you and me, don't be surprised if this happens here in America too, as if some strange thing were happening to you. Satan is an enemy of the church all over the world, and he will work to destroy the church. Satan is real, the Bible asserts. He's a, Satan is, a, Satan is a, dece- a defeated enemy, which means that he is real, means that he's an enemy. And then third, finally, Satan is a defeated enemy. He's a defeated enemy. Look again at this passage in Ephesians 6. Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, I want to give you a little test here. Here's the test. It's a pretty simple test. What's the opposite of good? Okay? What's the opposite of good? What's the opposite of above? What's the opposite of God? See, if you said that the opposite of good is evil, and if you said that the opposite of above is below, you were correct. But if you said the opposite of God is Satan, you would be wrong. Why? Why would you be wrong? Because to suggest that God has an opposite is also to suggest that his opposite is equal to him in power. Make no mistake, Satan is not the opposite of God. He is subordinate to God. The story of human history is not the story of the battle between good and evil and who will win, a la Star Wars. The story of human history is the story of God victoriously reestablishing his kingdom on the earth even as he allows Satan to resist him for a time while on the earth. When Paul says here that our struggle is against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, he is doing so against the context of God's sovereignty over everything. In other words, Satan and his minions are on a leash in which God allows them to resist his work for a time because in his wisdom and power and sovereignty... God even uses Satan unwillingly, unwittingly, as a servant of God's plan in human history. Make no mistake, there is no question who is in ultimate control and who is the ultimate victor. Uh, Psalm 2 anticipates Satan's defeat in no nonsense terms. It describes earthly political leaders rebelling against God... But make no mistake, the power behind those earthly political leaders are these spiritual forces of evil Paul is referring to in Ephesians 6. Now, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put Psalm 2, part of Psalm 2 up on the screen because I want you to see this. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's his anointed? 
Jesus, saying, let us break their chains and let us throw off their shackles. Now, the power behind the power, the powers behind the power is Satan and his minions. But what, look what it says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have, notice the verb tense, notice the verb tense. It's not I will someday. It's not I hope to someday. It's I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This, by the way, was written chronologically before Christ's first coming, before Christ's second coming. But from God's perspective, it is already done. I have installed my king. My kingdom will come. And of course, this is the testimony of the book of Revelation, the inevitability of God's kingdom on earth. God is victorious. Satan is a defeated enemy. But when did the defeat happen? When did it happen? Remember, I said just a moment ago, I said that God keeps Satan on a leash for the time being. Because even in his resistance to God's plan, Satan actually becomes an unwilling and unwitting participant in God's victory. Here's what I mean. And I'll close with this. From the moment that Satan tempted mankind to sin in the Garden of Eden, God began to work to reestablish his kingdom on earth. But for that to happen, he would have to send a Messiah who would pay for the sins of the world. But to pay for the sins of the world... This Messiah would have to be crucified on a Roman cross. Satan, working through Judas, working through the religious leaders in Israel, working through the Roman authorities, accomplishes what he believes is the crushing blow to God's plan. He kills the Messiah on a Roman cross and he dances on his grave. But even as he dances on his grave... The Messiah is raised from the dead. And listen, listen to this. Listen to what the scriptures say. Hebrews 2, Christ took on human nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Colossians 2, God disarmed the principalities and powers, these, these powers behind uh, that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, these spiritual uh, powers. God disarmed the principalities and powers, Satan's minions, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's where the victory over the enemy happened, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan is a defeated enemy. Yes, he's still powerful. Uh, and as you look around the world and in your own life, you undoubtedly see places, pockets, where he has these Victories, But no matter what we see, no matter how discouraged you may feel at times, you need to know that God has won the war and Satan is a defeated enemy. God is the victor. His kingdom will be established. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, there is nothing that Satan can do to snatch you from the hand of God. Nothing that he can do to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because he is a defeated enemy and God has won the battle. Would you bow with me for prayer? When we look around the world, Lord... It sure doesn't look like Satan is a defeated enemy. 
in the midst of a pandemic, people all over the world are dying in a nation that is so divided politically that cannot entertain one another's uh, different opposite uh, ideas uh, in a way that is gracious. In a world in which there are wars, Lord, it seems like Satan is, doesn't seem like he's defeated. Seems like he's victorious. But Lord, we affirm the truth that at the cross, Satan was defeated once and for all. He is a defeated enemy. You have allowed him for a time to accomplish your will on the earth. But even though he resists your work and your establishment of your kingdom, even though he is an enemy of the church, throughout human history, the church has continued to advance through broken people like me who lead it, sinful people like me who lead it, and through broken people who are congregants of your church, who are lay leaders in your church, even through broken people, your church continues to advance because you have won the battle and Satan is a defeated enemy. We affirm this truth this morning. We thank you so much for this truth. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done on the cross on our behalf. If there are people here this morning, Lord, who've never come to a place where they have trusted in what you have done for them on the cross, perhaps today would be the day that you would drive the sweetness of that truth home. That at the cross, their sin, like my sin, has been eternally forgiven, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and his body broken there on the cross. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And that because of that, by faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can have relationship with you now. That we can be transformed into the people that you have created us to be. That we can begin the process now that will be completed in eternity. That we can be part of the victory that you have already won. Pray that that truth would become real to some people here in the room this morning. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.